Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 9. We saw the last time in 1 Corinthians 8, and the title was Principles of Christian Liberty and the Weaker Brother, and basically that, you know, in Christ we're free, right? We have the law written in our hearts. Uh, when we come to Christ, it's not a set of rules, uh, but we have the love of Christ in our heart. But we are free. If the Bible doesn't specifically condemn it in Scripture, we can partake of it. Uh, now, the instance that was happening back then was in the Corinthian church, where, again, we talked about this when we covered it, the eating of the meat, sacrificed to idols in the idol's temple. And the Apostle Paul says, there's no such thing as an idol. I can eat that meat with a clear conscience. However, if it's going to stumble a newer believer or a weaker believer, I'm going to love them enough to limit myself from that practice, and we can apply that to other things. Now, today, the Apostle Paul is really going to speak about his ministry and the sacrifices he's made and the discipline and self-control that he's used in these uh, different ministries. Uh, in case I didn't announce it before, the, teen, the teens can go in the back with uh, Vinny. Uh, he's in the back room if you would like to be dismissed. But uh, what we see here is uh, discipline, sacrifice, and um, in chapter 9, as we're going to see, the Apostle Paul was entitled to certain things as an apostle, as a minister. But again, the same theme as, as 1 Corinthians 8. He gave up some of these entitlements uh, for the love of another brother, especially a weaker believer. And we're going to talk about the mindset of the Corinthians at the time. Uh, and what's interesting today is, you know, people have said, hey, Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, halfway across the world, a different time era, how does that apply to me? Well, I'm glad you asked because we're going to talk about that. Uh, we live really in a society, especially as Americans, we're entitled. We have an entitlement attitude. If I reach a certain age, I'm entitled to certain things. If I belong to a certain group, I'm entitled to certain things. Um, you know, um, as Americans, we've... Our great-great-grandparents and those in the World War II generation sacrificed everything they could to make a better life for their kids and their grandkids. They sacrificed. They disciplined. But in our society, you see more of, you look it on the news, you read it in the paper, we're entitled to stuff. And if we don't get our way, we just get an attorney and sue so that we can get our rights. So I think that you're going to find this very interesting today. Verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal or the certification of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, Paul starts to list his qualifications as both an apostle and a minister. And all the questions he posits demand a yes for an answer. Yes, these things are true. Now, he's laying the groundwork for some charges that were made against him. Uh, some questioned his authority for a variety of reasons, not limited to the following. Number one, the Apostle Paul worked with his hands. He was a tent maker. And in a very strong Hellenistic, you know, Greek-influenced society, they looked down on manual labor. They felt that that was work fitting for slaves. The rabbis, on the other hand, taught through the centuries. They, their uh, famous comment that they made was, if a man doesn't teach his son to work, he teaches him to be a thief. So you see a little bit of a clash of cultures back then. Second point, the Apostle Paul wasn't charismatic like some of the other preachers, and they made that known to him. And third, the Apostle Paul loved the Corinthians enough to discipline them, and uh, quite a few had issues with that uh, you know, loving, correcting hand. 
But the Apostle Paul says, you are the seal of my apostleship. The Corinthian church was part of the authentication, right, or proof of his position as an apostle. Because there were a few things that an apostle uh, qualified him. Number one was he had to see the risen Christ. He had to be chosen by Christ as an apostle. And also he had a special dispensation as an apostle. So those today, unfortunately, they claim to be apostles. Biblically, they cannot measure up. So the question that Paul kind of puts in their minds is, listen, if you doubt me or if I'm a false apostle, where does that leave your church? I'm the one who birthed that church. And we're going to, he's not, this isn't a thing where Paul's building up his ego. We're going to see why he does this, okay? But, you know, hey, did I give you the true gospel? If I'm a false apostle, where does that leave you as Corinthians? And again, not that our salvation is through man, but he had a special dispensation as an apostle, right? He goes on, verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Now, the word examine in the Greek can also mean scrutinize or interrogate. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, which was also the name for Peter? So we see this along with Matthew 8, where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law that Peter was married. There are some traditions that say he was single and he was a pope, but according to the scripture, that's not accurate. He was married. And 6, verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So my defense to those who scrutinize me. Christian history is very kind to the Apostle Paul, but some in the Corinthian church were not so kind uh, when they spoke of him. Now, all ministry will get to this point one or another. I mean, if you're in ministry... If you're in leadership, you can even look at secular leadership. You know, there's a difference between excoriation, you know, condemning for the sake of condemning, versus constructive criticism. Constructive criticism is good. There's a problem, but you know what? I'd like to know how I can be part of the solution and not just talk about the problem. I have a pastor friend from another church who said that we don't have a pointing ministry here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I never heard that. He goes, there's something wrong with the worship. There's something wrong with the children's ministry. There's something wrong, you know. He says, we don't have a pointing ministry. I like that. And we're going to see in chapter 12 when we get to it how as the body of Christ, we work together to achieve a goal, right? We all have a part in the body of Christ. And it's an aberration to not have a part in the body of Christ because God has given us gifts, the scripture tells us. Verse 7. Whoever goes to war, whoever goes to war at his own expense... Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? So three examples here of things in the world analogous to ministry in a sense uh, to really help them understand what he was really entitled to or his benefits as an apostle and a minister. Um, One is war. When a soldier goes to war, basically, the military gives him a uniform and all the accoutrements and equipment to be successful. A soldier doesn't go to war and buy his own rifle and F-22 and, you know, tank. He's provided those things by the military. In a vineyard, if someone's planting a vineyard, they expect when it becomes time for the fruit and the harvest time that they're going to partake of some of that fruit. And the same thing here with shepherding a flock. If you ever study shepherding, 
those who tend sheep and, and certain livestock, it's a very difficult job. It's, it's very labor intensive and you always have to be on your guard for predators. But the bottom line is when it's time to take the fleece in the hot weather or it's time to take the milk, okay, that shepherd partakes of those benefits or enjoyments. Now, if we look at all these three spiritually in ministry, war. And I don't think it's an accident that the Apostle Paul used these analogies. When we sign up and say, I want to be, I'm born again. I want to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You all of a sudden become a natural person, which we've covered before, and you stepped into the spiritual arena, right? So now you see everything really for what it is, the natural and the spiritual. And in a sense, in the spiritual world, we are conscripted into God's army. When we pray, we do warfare. When we minister, we do warfare. When we try to engage people and lead them to Christ, we do. We're in a war, folks. And the only way it's going to be is over, or the only time is when God says it's over. I've heard the expression, when you're in God's army, you're either in the battlefield or you're in the cemetery. So where are we with our spiritual lives, right? You look at a vineyard. In the Old Testament, it was very common for God to speak of Israel as uh, his, his vineyard. And he said, I, would, I dug up and I planted and I watered and I, I built security around this vineyard. And God expected when Israel came to maturity that they would bear spiritual fruit. So you see the spiritual implications here. And lastly, as a shepherd, when we are in ministry, we shepherd the flock, especially young or newer believers. You know, we have to be there to love them, to help them grow, and to keep them from falling away. These are important things to look at. Verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt. This is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partakers of this hope. So he's building his case here. The plower or the thresher do their jobs with the hope of sharing in the harvest. Otherwise, it's a downer to do all that work and not to partake. So much so that in Deuteronomy 25, in the law, God said, if you're using oxen to, you know, to plow or to thresh or whatever it is, as the oxen goes through the, the, the yard, let him have a drink of water. Let him eat some of the grain. You know, it would be cruel to put a muzzle on an ox while he's treading out the grain. I'm sure Peter would really like this part. But read, in Luke 10, we see all the, this also in the New Testament. Luke 10, one verse, verse 7. Even Jesus, he says, when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, and they were to go into the village, and they would go to a person's house, he says to them, remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. And in Galatians 6, 6, four verses, but I'm just going to read one of them, the first one. It says, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. All right, so again, he's, now he used, he used worldly examples, and now he uses an example from God's word to, to bolster his claim. Verse 11, and this is kind of where it apexes, right? This is the, the kind of the climax of this chapter. He says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, 
but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commended that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So here's the culmination of the Apostle Paul's rights as a minister, and he's basically saying, if we sow spiritual things to edify, you know, to bring into the fold, to build, uh, is it such a, a problem if we reap material blessings from you? Now, he uses another example, verse 13, the priests and the Levites. If you go back into the Old Testament, you go back into the law, you're looking at Numbers 18 and Deuteronomy 18. The Levites and the priests came from a bloodline where they were the only bloodline in the tribes of Israel that didn't get any land. God didn't want them to be distracted with working the land. He wanted them to solely be working in the temple, to handle the sacrifices, to teach the people, right? Solely in his spiritual uh, arena. So the Lord set it up, and this is where the word tithe and offerings come from. Some people have questions. The word tithe literally just meant tenth or 10%. And the offerings were the certain offerings that the people would bring to the priest and the Levite. They would sacrifice the animal and give the, the bulk of the meat to the priests for them and their families to partake of. So this tithe and offering supported the spiritual leaders and their families. Now, if that system breaks down, you have trouble in a society. In a few weeks, I'm going to be in the last chapter of Judges uh, on Wednesday night, Judges 21. But here you see in the Old Testament a picture of when the spiritual system broke down, right? The, the priests and the Levites were corrupt, and they weren't doing their jobs, and they weren't teaching the men, and the men weren't teaching their families. And what you had was uh, a phrase that kept being repeated. There, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody was just kind of sort of where our country's headed. There are no moral absolutes. What, anything goes. Um, Cheryl Crow's song you know, was to say, if it... If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. That's the attitude. If it feels good, do it, right? So you see that system starting to break down. Now, this system of tithes and offerings came into the church, uh, came into the New Testament, and then it, it found its way into the church. And there are aberrations. There are problems on both sides. If you look at some of the, and Calvary's good like this. It, in the Calvary movement, we don't speak about tithes and offerings for the most part unless it comes up in Scripture. But it's, it's very easy to go somewhere and find a church where they're always looking for your money. They're always looking to shake you down. As a matter of fact, I heard of um, a brother who went to a church. He was a pastor, actually. And the pastor had everyone take out their wallets. This is, this is amazing. So they all took out their wallets and their purse, and they asked everyone to switch with the person sitting next to you. And then he said, take out all the cash and put it in the offering. So, boy, I bet you they did really good that day. I remember um, one particular church, the pastor got a Bentley. It was like a $200,000 car from his congregation. As evangelicals, we can be our own worst enemies. And then we wonder why the government now starts to scrutinize the nonprofits. You know, I, I don't blame the current presidential administration. They should look into some of these abuses. So you see an aberration on one side where the church is always begging for money. Now on the other end, there are Christians who are financially able and they just don't tithe. Now that's a question of a maturity issue and really a selfishness issue and something that has to be looked at through the scripture. 
All we have belongs to God anyway, and that's something we have to realize. Now, the cool thing here, just on a side note, is, and not every church has the blessing and the ability to be able to do this, but at our fellowship, we, the pastors don't know what each person gives, and we like it like that. What we do is we look at the aggregate tithes so we can budget every year. So that's a blessing on, on our end. Uh, and it, it helps us to, you know, every man's heart is wicked. It helps us to look at everyone equally. So tithing is, is an issue between you and the Lord. And we're going to keep it like that. Now, after all that being said, the Apostle Paul says, but we didn't take from you, Corinthians. After all that, we're entitled to this. This is a benefit. This is what the scripture says. I mean, he makes a rock-solid case. Then he says to the Corinthians, but we didn't take anything from you. And the question is, why? Because we know in Scripture that the Apostle Paul did take from other churches and other Christians. So I'm just going to go through a few lists, a um, few things pointed out in Scripture. Number one, in Corinth, there was a faction of those who questioned the Apostle Paul's motives. So in this instance, he wasn't going to give them any more fuel to accuse him. Second point, in Corinth particularly, it was more of a wealthy area. So what happened was you would have your itinerant preachers, you would have your itinerant philosophers, you know, they did a circuit. They'd hit different cities, and they would go and everybody wanted to hit Corinth because there was money in Corinth. And they would charge pretty good fees for their services, for their, their speaking and, um, you know, their wisdom and all that other kind of stuff. So, you know what? Paul didn't want to be caught up in that. He wanted them to know, listen, I'm not like them. He wanted to differentiate himself from that group. Third point, in Corinth, apparently, as we go through this book, we see there were a lot of weak believers. First and second Corinthians are one of the largest epistles uh, that are written to the churches. There were some problems in Corinth. So he knew that they were weak believers, and he didn't want to stumble them. Now, I'm, I say verse 12 for last. I kind of, lead, kind of did it backwards. He says, he says, nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So he limited himself, he endured, he put up with a lot, so there would be no chance of the gospel being hindered. Now, it almost sounds like a contradiction in the points that he was just making. What are we talking about here? Well, you know, in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, if eating meat in an idol's temple causes me to stumble a weaker beloved brother, I will never eat meat again. So maybe for a certain period of time or a certain geographical area, he could eat of the meat, but he chose not to, so he wouldn't stumble a weaker brother. In 1 Corinthians 9, it's the same mindset. He doesn't want to stumble these weaker believers, so he says, you know what? I'm just going to make tents in this particular city to support myself. And really, the whole underpinning of this is the word love. And I covered this in 1 Corinthians 8. Love was the underpinning here. He loved these people, right? Now, folks, it would be a shame if we didn't apply these biblical principles to our lives. In all of your lives, you're going to come to a crossroads. You're going to come to a point where you are entitled to something. Yes, in this particular instant, I, that, that's owed to me. You know, it should be coming to me. And there's going to be a point where you may look at that and say, but if I take of this entitlement, it could stumble other, other brothers or sisters. And you know, as Christians, we always run into a crossroads in life where we have to make a, a decision. Well, gee, what can I give up? Or if I give this up, you know, I really, I've been looking for this benefit all along. But God may be calling us to give up a certain benefit 
just for the sake of setting an example to a weaker believer. Now, it doesn't mean, again, if we do it grudgingly or angrily and without joy, then you know what? The Bible's clear. Just take the benefit. What we do is if we give something up, if we love another person, we do it out of love, out of our heart, not because of compulsion. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. Verse 15. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done for me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For I pre if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will I have been entrusted with a stewardship, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in Christ. So the Apostle Paul lists his rights as a minister. Now he limits his rights as a minister. He's basically telling them, I haven't used these benefits, but I'm not telling you this so all of a sudden you hook me up. You know what I'm saying? Because then I wouldn't be able to boast about it. And, you know, I kind of like, I see a sense of humor in there. It's pretty good. So he's kind of boasting a little bit, but he's saying, listen, I'm not writing this so that you can, you know, hook me up. I'm setting the record straight. His first limitation was not receiving what he was entitled to for the reasons we just went over. He goes on, but what I can't boast about, one thing I just can't boast about is preaching the gospel. I'm compelled to do this, number one, by God, and number two, by my conscience. The gospel proper can in no way be tied to money. The gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life. 1 John 5 says, and this is, you know, this is the testimony. This is a free gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ offers to all. That, there can't be any strings with financial dealings. You know, let's, if we take an altar call, everybody who gets saved, we've got to collect 100 bucks. We can't do that. You know, the Apostle Paul is very clear. It was freely given by God, and we freely give it. So you see the love in this guy's heart for those who are lost. And what is the gospel? For those of you who don't know, the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He shed his blood for the remission of our sins. He had to be crucified on that cross, and those nails didn't hold him. His love for us held him to the cross. He could have popped those nails out, no problem. He did miracles before. Even those below said, you did miracles for others. You saved others. Why don't you save yourself? It was love that held him to that cross, right? And the only way, folks, that we get eternal life, that we get to go to heaven, is by believing in the sacrifice that Jesus made, by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the gospel message, right? He died and he rose again, as he promised, in fulfillment of the scriptures. So the apostle Paul says, woe. We cover this in Revelation. The word is uai in the Greek. It has a very strong, deep meaning. Woe to me if I don't preach. The word for preach is to bring, declare, announce, herald. Augustine said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. I like that. Because our words and our deeds go hand in hand. They both have to kind of jive with each other. Now, this is, this is a, a situation where we can look at the word sharing and we can look at the word love. I am so, th the attitude is this, not that it's, it's compulsory, well, the attitude is this, I am so thrilled that God you know, sent his son to die for my sins to really mentally, heartfully get what salvation is. I have that, that is so great. You know, 
X amount of years later, I'm still thrilled to death that Jesus did this for me. And in a sense, what we're saying is, I want everyone else to have this gift too, especially those we love, right? But also, you know, Jesus came and he died. So that, John 3, 17, so that the world would not be condemned, but through him, the world might be saved. And our love for the world and for salvation is, 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 has to reflect God's heart and the heart of Jesus. And even if we're shy, some may say, gee, but I, you know, I don't have a way with words and, uh, you know, I don't know, I just, I get confused. Even if we're shy, that the prayer is that God opens the door, something simple. We're shy, we don't have a great command of scripture, but someone comes up to us and says, coworker, a neighbor, you know what, you just seem so much happier, you know, things don't bother you as much as they used to. You know, you, you've changed, what is it about you? I mean, gee, if that's not an open door, <laughs> right? That's a cascade there, right? That's a huge open door. And all you have to do is share what the Lord has done for you. It's as simple as that. And explain to them what it is that the Lord did for you. Now, again, sharing, love. How are we towards others with what God has given us, starting with the free gift of eternal life? You know, is our desire to love those enough to look for an open door or to uh, build those bridges like the Apostle Paul did and share the message of salvation. Because sharing the gospel is the ultimate form of love. I remember years ago, I was saved maybe a few years, and I was sitting all the way in the back in church, and I was listening to my pastor preaching about sharing the gospel. In my mind, I'm thinking, that's your job. <laughs> I have a job, you have a job, you share the gospel. But it wasn't long before the Lord worked on my heart and said, you know what, if you really love these people, you will tell them about eternal life. That's like someone who has a deadly disease, and you know a particular surgeon that has the answer that's going to cure them, and, and you withhold that information. It's very similar in a sense. Now, he says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Many pulpits in America should have that bumper sticker, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, plastered on the inside of their pulpit. It's not said enough. It's not in enough pulpits. Pulpits are being defiled with trendiness. What's trendy? What's the new book? Hey, how can we grow our church through the purpose-driven church? Or how can we grow our church through secular means? Or we talk about politics on Sundays. I don't care if you're a liberal or you're conservative. You're welcome here. And you know what? The gospel is good for a liberal as it is a conservative. So it isn't about politics. It isn't about man's successes. It's about the gospel. Woe to me. I've read this Bible a few times. Woe to me personally if I don't preach the gospel, right? And verse 17, he says, if I preach willingly, I have a reward. But if compelled, it's a stewardship. Kind of see the uh, idea of stewardship in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. But either way, it's going out. And the apostle Paul's reward was the satisfaction of loving these people and giving them freely the gift of salvation to save souls. Now, this is something that we really need to meditate on. Luke 19 speaks about the minas, very similar, and Matthew 25 speaks about the talents. Now, some Bible commentators say one reflects, you know, you heard the story. The guy, you know, the, the master is a picture of God. You know, he gives these minas, or the, a talent was a weight of money, minas. He gives them to his servants, and he says, do business until I return. And there's some nuances and variations in each one of those stories. But in each story, one of the servants is considered a wicked and lazy servant, where he takes the, uh, the item that's given, and he kind of folds it up in a kerchief, and he, he plants it in the ground, he leaves it there. When the master comes back, he takes it out and says, here, here you go. 
And he goes, you wicked and lazy servant. You could have at least put it in the bank and made interest off of it. And the picture there was, you know, folks, those of us who have, given, have been given much, much is required of us. What, is the, what has God given you? Do you have the gift of teaching? Do you have the gift of mercy? You know, what gifts has God given you through the Holy Spirit? The Bible says, right? And what are we doing with those gifts? Should we take those gifts and really pray about, Lord, not really sure what to do with this, not really sure what the gift is, uh, but, you know, I really want to be a part of working for your kingdom of heaven. I love you. I have the love in my heart of Jesus. I love the lost. I especially love those that I know that don't know the gospel. What is it that you want me to do? And, you know, it's not that, again, it's not compulsory. Oh, gee, I feel so convicted today. I've got to do something. I don't want it. I don't have enough time. Again, it's got to be done out of love out of our heart. Because we all work together. It's like one of those mosaics, you know. Each individual piece doesn't really look like much. But when the whole mosaic is put together, it makes this beautiful piece of art, this tapestry. We all fit in one of those pieces. And if the body of Christ isn't working properly, and we're going to see this in, in chapter 12, it's a, like a beautiful mosaic with some pieces just kind of missing and the glue sticking over there, you know. It doesn't really look the way it should look. So it's something that we need to pray about. Lord, how can I be a part of your kingdom? How can I be a part of, of doing your will? Verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward God, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. And again, not to speak for the Apostle Paul, but, you know, Jesus appeared to him, right, in a miraculous way. Uh, he you get the idea or the understanding in second, I believe it's 2 Corinthians that he uh, went to see the third heaven, went to at some point get a glimpse of the throne room of God. And he just was on fire. Doing what the Lord had called him to do took precedence of all others. Now, and again, I think the same thing with us. When I sat in the back of the church and said, no way, man, I'm not doing it, how did I end up here? <laughs> I didn't just wake up one day and, what am I doing up here? Why are you all looking at me, you know? But what it is, is it's a maturity in God's word. As we grow and mature in God's word, it changes us. You can't force the change. No more than a fruit tree can go and make a piece of fruit pop out on the branch. God's word changes us. And it's a, it's a slow process. And it's, it's painless. Well, most of it's painless. But <laughs> we'll save that for another time. So the second limitation is he says, although... The Apostle Paul is free from all men. He's made himself a servant to win those to Christ. So he's free. But in some instances, he constrains himself. He uses discipline and he uses self-control to win others to Christ. And the question is, what is it, folks, in our lives that we can give up to bring more souls into the kingdom of heaven? What now is a hindrance as we sit here and we read God's word what is it maybe in our lives, an area, a closet in our life, albeit a small closet, that we're not willing to give up, but that's a hindrance in serving the Lord? If I give, you, give us all a few seconds, we can probably think of something. You know, how important is hanging on to that one last closet 
in our homes, in our lives, in the hearts. When our desire is to save souls, we become adaptable. We become bridge builders. Remember, we, the true church, the aberrant church, let's start with the aberrant church, the dysfunctional church, tries to get as much as they can out of the folks. The true church wants to give, wants to give this message of salvation. That's the purpose. You know, we're, as mature believers, we get edified and built up, but we also want to bless others with uh, salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 10:8, freely you have received, freely give. Verse 20, to the Jew I became a Jew, to those under the law as one under the law. Paul spoke often about the Judaizers, telling Gentiles, you have to become a Jew first before you become a Christian. Paul said, no. You have to become circumcised. You have to keep the whole law. Paul said, no. However, when him and Timothy preached to the Jews, Timothy as an adult got circumcised. Contradiction? No. He wanted to win those under the law, and I'm sure Timothy went, did it voluntarily. God bless him. Um, verse 21. To those without the law, the Gentiles, as one without the law. Not that means that Paul comes in like a party animal breaking all the laws, but he's not going to hold the Gentiles to a standard that they're not familiar with. His, his, his biggest concern first is winning them to Christ. Sometimes we in the Christian community want to look at the world, all those groups out there that are trying to destroy this country, and we're pointing the fingers, and we're trying to hold them to a standard that some of us don't even are, are not held to. So what are we doing trying to hold them to that standard? We need to love them one soul at a time, win them to Christ, and eventually their hearts and their attitudes and their behaviors will change. And that's what we hope for. Verse 22, to the weak I became as weak. We saw this in chapter 8. He's going to withhold himself. He's going to restrain himself from certain activities to win the weak, right? Again, not compromising, but be, being open to the Holy Spirit and common ground. You adapt to sharing with your audience. I've dealt with a lot of Muslim people, those of Middle Eastern descent. You know what they're looking for? They're not looking for me to stuff a tract in their face and then take off. You know, what they're looking for is in, in their communities over the seas, they're very community-oriented. They're very hospitable. They want to know that you love them, that you actually care for them first. That's the bridge that you build with the Middle Eastern community. I've, I've seen it, and, and it, it works. God bless them. To the observant Jew, the observant Jew wants to know that you revere God's law and you revere the Old Testament. Amen to that. I do. I revere God's law. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. No problem. To those who have been burned by religion and feel, it's like the cartoons. They've been burned by religion and they feel that when they go to church, they're not going to go because there's two guys, big guys are going to take them, turn them upside down one leg at a time and shake all the money out of them like a cartoon, like a salt shaker. They want to know that you're not out to use them. Amen to that. You know, you adapt to each person's particular background and lifestyle to win them to Christ, right? And verse 22, he says, check this out. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. All, 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 some. Are we willing to make a difference to one person? One person, right? I heard a great story before church in the hallway about that. You know, and sometimes ministers get caught up in this. It's a numbers game. How big is your flock? And we tend to, you know, extrapolate up a little bit. Well, how big is yours? Oh, I got thousands in mine. That's not what it's about. 
Are we looking to win just one soul to Christ? Would we go and show up to a venue where there was one hungry soul looking for Christ? Will we do it? Kind of reminds me of that, um, I don't even know where it, where it was, and I read it once before, a picture of a boy on a beach, and the, the, the ocean has washed up all these starfish. And he knows that he's got to get the starfish back into the water for them to survive. And uh, there's literally thousands of starfish on the beach, and there's one boy. And a, a man comes up to the boy and says, son, what are you doing? There's too many of them. You can't make a difference. And he picks up the one starfish, and he goes, well, I'm going to make a difference to this one. And he throws it back into the water. Hey, man, all, 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 some. Who has God put in your life? Ah, it's just one or two people. Praise God. Give him the gospel. Verse 24, last few verses, and we wrap it up. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul's third limitation for the gospel's sake, discipline and subjection. And he uses the Greek games as an example. I just love history. I love to read this stuff and go back into history and see what was going on at the time because it really, it really elucidates what he's trying to say here. In those days, they had the Greek Olympian games. Those were like the national games. But Corinth had the Isthmian games because Corinth was on an isthmus, like an hourglass, right? And the Isthmian games were played the year before and the year after the Greek games because, you know, that would, of course, overshadow their local events. Now, in these games, most, most runners finished the race, but only one got the victor's wreath for first place, similar to our gold medals. How do you get to first place? Verse 25, he says, by competing. In the Greek, the word is agonizomai. Agonizomai. In the English, we get the word agonize. There's a serious effort given in this competition. People didn't dawdle. And he says, and temperate in all things, or exercising restraint or self-control. You could look at that in the terms of, if you're competing for a physical event, you have to watch your diet. You have to watch the foods you eat, right? You have to exercise restraint in a lifestyle. Maybe not stay up late at night um, socializing, but to get good rest because you want to be, you know, how many, raise your hand, how many of you have ever competed in some type of endurance sport? All right, so most of you know what he's talking about here, right? In order to get that crown. Then and today, you, you did whatever it took to receive that crown. Now, Paul shifts gears here in verse 26, and he goes, thus I fight not like one who beats the air. What is he talking about? Here's the second example, Greek boxing. Now, I was like, Greek boxing? I never heard of Greek boxing. <laughs> so I checked out, I went to the history books, and this was serious business. It wasn't like the boxing you see today, you know, do, do, you got the gloves and the mouthpiece and the bell and, you know, all that kind of stuff to... If one guy's down, the referee, you know, moves him to the side. This was serious business. Greek boxing was a grueling sport. They pummeled each other. The only thing I can think of that comes close is the UFC, the ultimate fighting, and they just, just nail each other. There's blood everywhere. This is what they did back then. 
It was serious stuff. So you didn't beat the air. You didn't dawdle and say, hey, I'm going to be one of the boxers. You really better be in shape and give it your best effort. Because if you didn't, you were going to get hurt. Or in some instances, you would die. So now you kind of get the background to what the Apostle Paul is speaking about. I love Paul because he's an intense guy. I think he's passionate. And even his examples, you know, you really got to pull that out of what he's saying there. And for what? What do we do all this for? Verse 25, a perishable crown, the Stephanas, the wreath around the head, right? But we believers strive for an imperishable crown. Not that you're going to lose your salvation because they will finish the race, but for those rewards, for those awesome things that God has said, well done, my good and faithful servant. So in the spiritual realm, we, we compete, you know, we, we run the race to win, we subject ourselves physically and discipline ourselves to win an imperishable crown. You know what, though, as Americans, sometimes we have it backwards. Look at American sports. All the sports, the games, the, the practicing church, reading my Bible prayer, you know, that's got to work around my physical competition. The Apostle Paul is saying no. Like someone who, who does these grueling competitions, spiritual realm, winning that imperishable crown, that is, that is the goal, not the stupid wreath or the gold medal or the certificate. That has to be subservient to those spiritual goals that we're looking for. We need to put more effort into these types of things. Brothers and sisters, do we give our best to the things important to God? A brother gave me a book that I started reading. I never read it before. A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God. I love the title, The Pursuit of God. Do we pursue our Creator? The Bible says, if you seek me with all my heart, you will be found by me. That's a promise that God's made. And even as believers, when we have that salvation, do we still pursue God? Right? It's an important thing to to look at. We give our best sometimes to our spouse and kids and those we love, but do we give our best to God? In the Old Testament, God said, you know, the temple, the sacrifices, you bring your animal and you sacrifice it to the Lord and You know, people were looking at their flocks going, that sheep has a limp. Come here, you're going to the temple. That sheep has a runny eye. That sheep is deformed, born without legs. That's what we're going to give to God. And God said through the prophets, don't give me your worst of your flock. I want the best of your flock. And we may look at that and say, so what? We don't give sheep anymore. But the question is, do we give our best to God? That's the question to ask, right? If I have time, I'll pray or read the Bible or tame my flesh or get closer to God. I want to read something that A.W. Tozer wrote in this book on page 17. Really meditate on this. And this was written in 1948. Imagine if he was alive. Well, I'm sure he's got mezzanine seats at this point. But um, if he wrote this in our generation. He says, "I I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. That's heartbreaking. Kind of reminds me of the Laodicean church. Jesus is on the outside of a church knocking. I stand at the door and knock. We use this for altar calls, but in its context, in its true strictest context, Jesus is begging the church to let him in and to be a part of the fellowship with them, 
That's heartbreaking. We covered that in Revelation. Every age has its own characteristics. Right now, we are in an age of religious complexity. The simplicity which is in Christ is rarely found among us. In its stead are, and this is what churches today really like and think that this is, this is the way to go. But he's saying the opposite. In its stead are programs, methods, organizations, and a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention but can never satisfy the longing of the heart. The shallowness of our inner experience, the hollowness of our worship, and that servile imitation of the world which marks our promotional methods all testify that we in this day know God only imperfectly and the peace of God scarcely at all. If the desire is not in the heart, it's never going to happen. Last verse. I'll read it again. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Discipline and subjection, self-control, becoming more and more foreign in today's society. I had an interesting email on, on our law enforcement server. And these, these emails are, are sent to all the police agencies. It's kind of interesting. There's a class that supervisors in law enforcement can go to. It's called Managing Generational Change, Generation X, Y, and the Boom. This email tells law enforcement supervisors that they can come take a class and help them to deal with supervising Generation X cops. These guys come in, they don't want to work the holidays. How quickly till I get into the detective bureau? How quickly where I can get promoted and make more money? Generation X, you know, gimme, gimme, gimme. I want it now, I'm entitled. And it's very challenging for supervisors to deal with Generation Xers in law enforcement. There's not the same, you know, I'll do whatever it takes because I'm the new guy, right? Discipline and self-control. You look at, let's look at the world. I've seen this New York City fireman. I have friends that have uh, come out for the fireman uh, exams. It's grueling. It's usually done on the hottest days. They have to go up flights of steps with packs on their back. Sadly enough, every once in a while somebody passes away because they, they're just not in shape for it or someone goes to the hospital. So the, the people who do make it or who don't make it, they say, you know what, the test is too hard. So what do they do? They sue the department so they can lower the standards. Listen, I got news for you. If I'm overcome by smoke in the basement and you can't get my fat 214 pounds up the stairs, you shouldn't be a fireman. Find another line of work. You know what I'm saying? But that's the way the world is. But you know what's worse? When the worst ills of society creep into the church, Christians can be undisciplined and without self-controls, right? How diligently do we, brothers and sisters, study for a promotional exam or to get a project done, but we're not concerned about studying God's word and his love letter to us? How diligent are we to converse with others and build relationships, but we don't have time to pray, which is conversing with God? How disciplined are we in general to get what we want, but not disciplined in the things of God? How good are we at applying success tips from the world? You heard the speaker last Sunday, Stu, speak about in the day one of his gurus that he followed was Tony Robbins. You know, study the man, study the books, success, self-help, promotions. You know, we want to study how we can be successful, but we're not so disciplined at applying biblical principles. In the book of Haggai, God said to the prophet, children of Israel, they're living in these paneled homes. They got two homes, some of them. My temple is in disrepair. Does anybody care? Pretty serious business. Does God change? Do people change? Not really. 
It's just a different circus with the same, the different, same circus, different clowns, I've heard. But if we can be disciplined in worldly things, don't we owe a little bit of discipline to the importance of what God wants? Imagine what the church could look like if every Christian put that same amount of discipline that they use in the world and self-control into serving God. The world would be a much different place, I'm sure. So my question today is before we close, brothers and sisters, can we make an effort today in being a little bit more disciplined? You know, just pray. Say, Lord, how can I be more disciplined? How can I exert more self-control? How can I be just as concerned or more concerned with the things that please you as I am with things that please me in the world? How can we give up our rights and sacrifice for the cause of Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for...